You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Scott Trench and Mindy Jensen to talk about the ins and outs of first-time home buying. Their book, First-Time Homebuyer, The Complete Playbook to Avoiding Mistakes, aims to demystify the entire process and make sure that a new buyer is making the best financial decisions possible when it comes to this big purchase. Scott is the CEO and president of BiggerPockets.com. He and Mindy host the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, and both are seasoned real estate investors and authors. Today's episode is a little different from what we usually talk about, as it's not necessarily a specific investment strategy. We look into the home buying process for first-time buyers. A home is one of the biggest purchases you'll make in your lifetime. Whether you actively decide to use this first home as an investment or not, There are a lot of mistakes that you could potentially make if you're not familiar with some of the factors involved in the process of buying a home. This topic is important because it can have a huge impact on the future of your real estate investing. So I mentioned it's not a specific investing strategy, and it's not necessarily, but if you get it right, it could propel your real estate investing journey to success much quicker. But if you get it wrong, it could put you in a big hole to start. So let's learn the do's and don'ts of buying a home with Scott Trench and Mindy Jensen. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, we have two guests, Scott Trench and Mindy Jensen. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Scott, you were actually on the show, the Millennial Investing Show, a while back, which was episode number four for anyone that's interested in going back to listen to it. Some people might remember your story from that episode. But for those who don't, tell us a bit about yourself and Mindy this is your first time on the show. So welcome. And tell us a bit about yourself as well. I am 30 years old. I'm the CEO of biggerpockets.com, which is a real estate investing and wealth building educational platform, community, and resource hub for anybody looking to buy rental property. I am obsessed with the concept of financial freedom and began obsessively pursuing it right out of college, basically. Saved up my first year, bought a duplex uh, house hacking style. I know you house hack to get started with my real estate investing journey and kind of moved towards financial freedom over a five, six-year period. While my career at Bigger Pockets blossomed, I bought more real estate. I wrote a, a book called Set for Life as part of that, and I invest heavily in stocks. I'm not going to tell you how old I am. I have been investing almost as long as Scott has been alive. And I am the community manager for biggerpockets.com, which is where I met Scott. I also co-host their Bigger Pockets Money podcast with Scott. To say that Scott and I are obsessed with financial freedom is not adequately describing our feelings towards financial freedom. We do truly believe that anybody can be financially free no matter when or where they're starting. And that's something that we just preach every single week. I have reached financial independence and now I work because I have the best job in the world. And you get to work with Scott. And I get to work with Scott. That's right. She says something different when I'm not on the show. On this show, we mostly talk about investing strategies, but today we're going to dive into a topic that's not necessarily, you know, quote unquote, an investing strategy, and that's being a first time home buyer. 
it might not be a traditional investing strategy per se, but it's something that nearly everyone goes through or considers, and it can have a massive impact on your future as an investor. In the new book that you two wrote together, you wrote, your home can destroy your wealth and freedom or generate the same. And this book will show you how to make a decision that gives you the most financial flexibility possible. How can buying a home destroy wealth and freedom? So if you think about like what the typical home buying purchases, maybe not everybody's doing this, but kind of taking it to the extreme, you know, let's say I'm making $80,000 a year. And over the course of four, five, six years, I save up $40,000 outside of my retirement accounts. Well, what I might do is I might call a lender and say, I'm ready to buy a house. And I go to that lender and they qualify me for $400,000 in mortgage. So what do I do? I go buy a house that's $440,000. I put down $40,000 as a down payment and I take a loan for $400,000. And what this does is it uses up all of your liquidity. You're now back to broke or very close to it. And you're likely going to assume a higher monthly payment in the form of your new mortgage than maybe what you were paying previously in rent. And this is a surprisingly or shockingly common activity and situation for many first-time homebuyers. And what happens is now you've used up all your liquidity and your monthly run rate is higher just in terms of your mortgage, your principal interest taxes and insurance, not to mention all of the maintenance and fund surprises that come along with homeownership. So at the strategic level, buying a home that maxes out your purchasing power will make it harder to invest or create wealth in virtually every other area of your life. And it's harder to invest in stocks. It's harder to contribute to 401k. It's harder to buy rental real estate or whatever else it is you want to do with your after-tax dollars. So our book is kind of framed in the concept of like three challenges that confront the first-time home buyer. One is the strategy of like, generally speaking, how do I avoid that trap, but still buy a house that's reasonable and practical and gives me a good lifestyle, but that gives me much more freedom. And that's a several hundred thousand dollar decision, in our opinion, over the course of a decade or two. The second part of the book is framed around actually putting yourself in position to buy a good deal. And like, what is a good deal? If I'm trying to buy a $400,000 house, or that's my price range, how do I get the most value in that context as part of my purchase? And then the third part of the book is really about what to expect during the transaction process itself. The specifics of like, hey, my inspector is going to scare the living daylights out of me with the inspection report during that. And how do I walk through all of those kinds of things? Scott said that many people or some people do this. I would say most people do this because what is the first step when you are going to buy a house? Ooh, how much can I afford? So you call up your lender. The lender will ask you a series of questions. What's your income? What are your debts? Blah, blah, blah. You share the information with him and they say, oh, we can approve you for up to a $400,000 loan. A lot of people hear that and think, I need to buy a $400,000 house. But that's not actually maybe the best policy, as Scott more eloquently explained. Every time that I've bought in a house, I've known that I would qualify for significantly more than what I was actually trying to buy. And so every time I've gone to buy a house, I've always had no problem getting the loan that I was asking for, but I always ask them. I always like almost play a game. So I asked the lender, what would you have qualified me for if I had wanted more? And it's always really interesting to hear that they would you know, really qualify you for so much more than what you're asking for. Well, it seems that way to you. That is not how most people do that. And, and you probably were not going to be pleasantly surprised in your first purchase, I bet you. It's the second and third purchases. My understanding is your story, you've now house hacked two or three times. 
So what that means is that you have rental income that is coming in, supplements your wage income, that supplements your other passive income streams. And so now you have an extraordinary amount of income that you can be lent on. Your first purchase, that was not true. I would be willing to bet. And so that would be a multiple of your income, basically, or a percentage of your income that they would be using to compute your debt to income. So for example, when I first bought my first house hack, I could qualify for about $280,000. I bought a $240,000 duplex house hack when I got started on my journey. But all of a sudden, my wage income hadn't changed that much. But because I had years of rental history, my like financing option was like $800,000 or something ridiculous like that. I could get a million dollars leverage if I wanted between a couple of creative solutions. And so that's a great point and a great example of, hey, if you buy your first home wrong and go to max out to your limits there, you're not going to have that luxury that you and I, Robert, had when we went to get our next homes because you're not going to have that income from the rental or the other sources of income or the investment income that you're otherwise be able to build if you purchased your first one well below your means and were intentional about building wealth. I like what Scott said, intentional about building wealth. And I can't remember how much I qualified for on my first house. I bought it. It was a condo. I bought it for $50,000, but I did not factor in my HOA dues, which went up 200% the month after I bought the condo because I didn't read through the HOA docs and I didn't read through their financials. And it turns out they had no money in reserves, which is kind of a bad thing. So I was almost instantly house poor the very first time I did it. I was unable to contribute to a 401k and save and all of that because all of a sudden my $200 a month HOA due is now $400 a month, which is a lot when you're making $24,000 a year. One of the most tried and true quotes in real estate is just location, location, location. And I'd say that an equally similar or popular debate is this rent versus buy debate that a lot of people have. How do we know which is better for us? Isn't buying a house always a good idea? Always. 100%. There's no black and white. So this actually, I never understood the concept that your home is not an investment until I read an article from JL Collins. And he said, you know, your home isn't an investment, not if you buy it the way that most people buy it. And I had never bought a house like that. I had always bought a house that was a complete dump and I fixed it up and then it's worth more. I just invested. I made a lot of money. Every time I sold a house, I have made money except one, which I bought as a regular house, not a fixer upper. And lo and behold, I didn't make any money on that. I lost $13,000 happily because I hated the house and the neighborhood, but that's another story. If your mortgage is going to be significantly more than what you can rent a similar property for, it's probably not a good idea to buy a house. Unless, of course, you are going to buy a dumpy house and make it beautiful and then sell it. But you need to have more than one exit strategy if you do that. And that's, I think, another question, another conversation. Right now in the Bay Area, houses are appreciating exponentially month over month. New York, same thing. Actually, in most markets right this very moment, everything's appreciating month over month because there's nothing on the market. The market inventory is extremely low in most markets. But in general, the coast cities are going to be less financially advantageous to buy a house, especially if you're not planning on being there for at least five to seven years. Yeah. Just to add on to that, the rent first buy challenge, I think fundamentally, a most important lever is how long are you going to own the property? Not how long are you going to live in the property, but how long are you going to own the property? Because when you sell a property, 
what most people don't think about is that there are significant costs associated with selling the property. There are costs associated with buying the property, maybe one to three percent of the purchase price. That's maybe three to nine thousand dollars if you're buying a three hundred thousand dollar property. But when you go to sell the property, it's going to be seven to eight percent of that, which is what three times seven, twenty-one to twenty-four thousand dollars on that three hundred thousand dollar property, right? So as soon as you buy that property for three hundred grand, you've now spent a few thousand dollars closing on it as a buyer. And if you were to just turn around and sell it tomorrow, you'd be out about $24,000 in sales costs. right? You're also assuming the mortgage and all, those, all that other kind of good stuff. That said, the difference between owning and renting is that you're building equity in the property as an owner. right? Your in- inflation or appreciation is increasing the value of your property over time in a way that you do not benefit from as a renter. And you're paying down the mortgage. The offset both choices is an expense. It's not an investment. Your house, as most people purchase the house, is not an investment. It's an expense. And it can be cheaper to rent or to buy. And that fundamentally depends on your timeline that you're going to be living in the property. That said, if you're in a rapidly appreciating market, then obviously the timeline condenses and it can be expense to buy even if you're going to live there for just three or four years or even shorter if you're getting a crazy appreciation rate. But in general, I think that bubble is going to be in five to seven year timeline. And we've got a little spreadsheet that I crafted as part of the bonus content for the book that kind of maps out what that looks like. As a result of that, I just wrote a book called First Time Homebuyer and I am renting personally because I'd be a hypocrite <laughs> to put together that spreadsheet and put that together. Not because I'm a hypocrite, because it makes sense. This is logic that I apply to my own life. And I don't think I'm going to be in this location for more than a few years. It didn't make sense to house hack or live and flip for the lifestyle I was going for. And so I'm actually renting because I'm not going to be here for a long enough timeline. I have bought in the past and I will buy again in the future. But for now, the equation makes sense in the rental side for me. I did not know that you were renting, Scott. I thought you were still house hacking. I house hacked for seven years and now I am renting. And my house hacks are paying for the rent, which is very nice. But no, I I rent currently. Interesting. And so for people that might be wondering why the costs when you sell are so much higher than when you buy, what's that additional cost you're paying when you sell that you're not paying when you buy? Ooh, you've got your real estate agent commissions for both your agent and the agent representing the buyer of your property. This isn't the case in 100% of the transactions, but it's the case in like 99% of the transactions. The seller pays the commissions for both agents. There is title insurance that you are paying for the bank who is lending the money for the buyer to buy the property. There's uh, just like random little bits of maybe you have transfer taxes, maybe you have metro taxes. There's like all these little tiny things that you don't consider. But I think seven to eight percent of the purchase price or sales price, and I would say more like eight percent, is a good rule of thumb for when you're getting ready to list a house. If the agent that is selling your house and the agent representing the buyer buying your house will expect a two and a half to three percent commission typically in various markets. That's 5 to 6%. And then the remaining 1% to 3% is going to be a similar proportionally to what the buyer is paying in closing costs when they buy the home, with just little differences here and there. So that commission piece is that big component that you don't have when you're buying because like you said, the seller is paying that. So when you're buying, the reason you don't have that cost is because the seller that's selling you the house is paying that portion of your agent's commission. You've heard when you know having a buyer's agent is free. And well, it's not free, it's free to you, but somebody is paying that. And in this case, it's the seller. That's right. We talked before that 
there's a big discrepancy between what the banks think you can afford and what you can actually afford in terms of a smart financial decision. You can't even always just trust the online calculator. So how do we determine how much house we can actually afford? Is it a fixed dollar amount for the purchase price or is it more important to focus on the mortgage payment? I was just going to say, how much house can I afford is the wrong question to be asking because that question, the way that it's framed is saying, what's the most I can spend? And that's not where you should start. Look at what you're paying for your current housing costs. Let's say you've got, you're renting an apartment and it costs $1,000 a month. How does that feel in your budget? If you're making $10,000 a month, $1,000 a month might be real comfortable. If you're making $2,000 a month, maybe that's going to be super tight. So look at what you're paying versus what your income is and look for a mortgage payment that is very similar to that. And you want your mortgage payment to be all inclusive. It's called PITI or P-I-T-I, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. If you are, and HOA, PITI, huh, I don't know how to say the H, but if you have an HOA payment, factor that in too, because that is going to come out of your pocket every single month, no matter what. And then if you're looking at properties that are, you know, the bank says, oh, you can have 400,000. Then you're looking like, wow, a thousand was really comfortable. This is going to be a $2,000 a month payment. That's not going to work for you. Look at what your finances are. The bank is not going to help you make that payment. So you don't want them to be telling you where your payment is going to be. You want to be directing that conversation. Scott, I was thinking we should have some sort of like, I tried to look up a mortgage calculator where you put in your payment amount and it tells you how much you can afford. And all I kept finding were like reverse mortgages, which is a very different thing. Don't get a reverse mortgage. I just think if you kind of start with the, here's the maximum amount I can qualify for a mortgage on, and you bring that to your agent, they're going to just put you, you know, like the property that's $400,000 is either going to be in a nicer area or nicer than the property that's $300,000, right? That's true with everything you could ever purchase in life, right? Generally speaking, more expensive item is going to be more desirable to some extent with that. So it's just a matter of understanding, hey, the cost of buying the Lamborghini is things that you can't get elsewhere in your life and delays in your freedom, right? The consequence of buying the house that maxes out your purchasing power is that you are effectively ceding control over many other life decisions to your employer because you're probably already optimized on the income front. You're not going to be able to accumulate liquid wealth anywhere near as well buying the $400,000 house as you will with the $300,000 or $250,000 house. And you're going to be stuck there for a while in that situation. And so that's, I think, the consideration to think about is what do I value? What are must-haves? What are nice-to-haves? And then how do I get the most value in my purchase across all of the things that I'm looking for rather than just looking for the nicest house? Because then the $400,000 house is going to be nicer than the $300,000 house or it's going to be in a better location. Mindy, I've actually looked for a very similar calculator and I was not able to find anything either. And I think the issue is that the taxes change and some other things change when you try to back into it. So I think that was the problem that I found when I was trying to use a reverse calculator, if you will. So I ended up just building my own. But I think the question of like how much house can I afford, one of the issues is interest rates and taxes play a huge role in that because you could buy a $300,000 house at one interest rate in one tax bracket or a low tax area and buy a $300,000 house with a different interest rate and lower or higher taxes, and it might not be as expensive. And those are huge factors that play into really like what you end up paying on a monthly mortgage. And that's a big piece of it. You can't just look and say, I can afford a $300,000 house or $400,000 house. 
that is a super important thing to bring up is property taxes, because there's vastly different property taxes. These United States of America have 50 different property tax, probably more than that, actually. it's Where I live, every city is different. Yeah, exactly. So there's like a million different ways to figure out property tax. But I think a lot of people don't factor that in as well. Oh, I can afford $400,000. Well, yeah, if your tax rate is 0.5%, like I have here in Colorado. But when I lived in Wisconsin, it was 2%. So basically, the house that I lived in in Wisconsin was the tax bill was my entire mortgage payment here in Colorado. Yeah, so I, I owned a house in Massachusetts, about 150000 And so they have sales tax, which isn't great as a consumer. But because of that, they have typically have low property taxes. I think my property tax was maybe 2300 for the year, which wasn't bad on 150000 Then I bought originally from New Hampshire. I bought a house in New Hampshire. Again, 150000 My property taxes were $6,000 a year. So almost three times as much. And then I just bought another house in a, also in New Hampshire. It was almost 400000 And the total property taxes were only 8000 So clearly, it's significantly less from city to city, even state to state. So that's why it's such a huge component of you know, really how much can you afford? We did yeah. a study of this for bigger pockets. We did one where we looked at all the property taxes around the country and you know, you slog through these archaic calculations with mill levies and all this kind of stuff. Everyone's got a different formula for it. But it seems like property taxes on average across a lot of cities are pretty consistent in absolute dollars. So just the values, for example, in Colorado are significantly higher than the values that you're talking about in Massachusetts, New Hampshire. But the property taxes are still two, three, four thousand dollars a year on those higher values. So it seems like it costs about the same per person to run many cities across the country, with the exception of Chicago, which they seem to need a heck of a lot more per person to run that city. I'm not sure exactly why, Mindy, but a little dig there for you. Uh, (laughs) I had a very interesting talk with Jim Collins yesterday about Chicago in general. Yes, it's expensive, and that's all we'll say. Moving on. What's your next question, Robert? It's funny uh, (laughs) that you talked to Jim about Chicago because he's also a New Hampshire native. And when I spoke with him, we spoke about New Hampshire. We actually funny enough, lived about 20 minutes from each other without ever knowing it. But yeah, so it's funny. I've talked about properties, property taxes, and things like that with him as well. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. And his comment, though your house is not an investment, is really, really eye-opening because you have been fed. Your house is an investment. It's the biggest investment you'll ever make. No, it's the biggest purchase you'll ever make, most likely, unless you're buying like the Empire State Building. But just because it's the biggest purchase doesn't mean it's a big investment. If we decide we are going to buy a house, how do we get our financial situation in order to prepare for the big purchase? What are the most important things for us to focus on to get ready? Your credit score has to be decent because you are going to pay a lot of money in extra interest rates and extra fees and things like that if you have a bad credit score because you look like a risk. Your credit score is basically you doing what you said you would do financially. I said I was going to pay this credit card bill, but I didn't. I didn't pay it on time. So now my credit score is in the toilet. Why would a lender give you money to buy a house when your credit score is garbage? You said you were going to pay your credit card and then you didn't. How do I know you're going to pay your mortgage payment when you didn't? So on-time payments is one of the top factors into your credit score. So if you have a history of not paying your bills on time, change that habit. Start saving for an emergency fund for your house because you are something's going to break as soon as you buy the house. And I don't say that to make you scared, but I say that to prepare you. 
When you buy a house, something breaks almost instantly. And the cost of that item is inversely proportionate to how much money you have in your bank account. So if you are well-funded and sitting on $10,000, $15,000, it's like a broken lights switch cover. But if you have no money, if you just spent every dollar you had in savings on your down payment, you're going to need a new roof or a new air conditioner or a new furnace or new something. And it's going to be an immediate fix. And that's not written in stone, but Murphy's Law does rule real estate. I was just going to say Murphy's Law. Yes. So how do we get our financial situation in order? You need to have a lot of money. Brandon Turner has written a book called How to Invest in Real Estate with No and Low Money Down. I do not think that you are doing yourself any favors by investing in real estate coming from a poor financial position. If you have a strong financial position, you're going to do great. But Brandon's book is more about investing with none of your money. When you're buying a property for yourself, you need to have your money because who's going to pay for this stuff if it breaks? You just want to be prepared. I would say specifically, it's that credit score in that 700, 750 plus range, if you can work that out before the purchase. I think then it's about having the down payment and ten to $15,000 on top of that down payment in reserve. And that's where people get hung up because they're like, oh, $300,000 house, I need 60 grand plus another 10 to 15 grand. That's several lifetimes away of accumulation. Well, no, you don't need to have 25% to down. I'm not saying that. You got to have the down payment. You could purchase with a 3.5% down payment and have a ten dollars to $15,000 reserve with a good credit score. And I think you've got a very reasonable financial foundation to buy your first home. And that is a twenty dollars to $25,000 purchase. You have 3.5% on a $300,000 purchase, which is the median price. You may think that's crazy high or crazy low, depending on where you're listening from. But the median is three hundred. dollars So that's 3.5% is what? $10,500 on that purchase price. So that means that in order to buy a house, from the minimum would be about $20,000 in savings in order to buy that in liquid cash to have a, a pretty reasonable base. A better base would be $25,000, but you could probably begin your search around that $20,000 mark and continue to buffer up that savings while you're rounding out that search. The only cost that I might add to that is you should have money set aside for closing costs as well, because those tend to be significant, at least where I am. The house that I just bought, closing costs were about ten grand, So that's another significant costs that you need to take into consideration. I've actually negotiated a seller credit on every single real estate deal I've ever done. So I've never paid closing costs myself, but that is often a cost for a lot of people. Absolutely. Thank you. Yes, I forgot. We actually have it outlined in the book and I just forgot to mention it. Yes, it's down payment, closing costs, and then reserves of 10 to 15,000. And those closing costs can vary. For me, I've been able to largely wrap most of my closing costs into the, the mortgage that I'm getting. But that can vary depending on location, which is a great point for you to bring up. So thank you. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that buying your primary residence typically isn't an investment. But if it's done a specific way, your first home can actually turn into a cash flowing investment in the future. What steps do we need to take to make this a reality? What are the early decisions we need to make early on before we make the purchase? I love this one. Earlier, I said that the key to making a home a less expensive living option than renting, we're not talking about investments yet, but is how long you own the property. Not necessarily how long you live in the property, but how long you own the property. So there are three exit options that are likely to be in place for most people. Those are living in the property forever, which I think almost everybody overrates or over expects unreasonably as overweights as a probability in their journey. So living in the property forever, 
keeping the property as a rental property after you move out or selling the property for a gain. And so the goal here when you buy your home is to come up with the right exit strategies. And this is part of like part one discussion in the book is understanding that the housing is an expense the way most people buy it. And then to offset that expense or turn it into investment, you have to think through these three exit options, living in it perpetually, selling it for a gain, or renting it out. And the way you create the most optionality with those exit options is to buy with those in mind upfront. If you're analyzing your property, for example, as a good rental property when you buy it, before you buy it and live in it, well, great. After a year or two, you could move out and keep it as a cash flowing rental. And that's a perfectly viable situation. You're only living in the property for one or two years, but you're able to keep it for five, six, seven, and offset all of those transaction costs with the long-term appreciation that, and mortgage amortization that you might get. The other option is to sell it for a gain. Most people apply the buy and pray approach when they're looking to sell the property for a gain, where they buy the property and then just hope it goes up in value over time in line with the market. But I think that by improving the property, you can give yourself a lot better option for that. And I think that's where Mindy's really mastered that one. I haven't really done a, a lot of really meaningful rehab to my properties. I've done the buy a property that makes sense as a rental and move out strategy a few times. She's done the live and flip option. The live and flip is when you buy a property that is ugly. It's very unattractive, old, outdated. Many times it has been smoked in, but you buy something that's habitable. And that's really key. You don't, I've never bought a house that had meth. Well, I guess I should say I had never knowingly bought a house that had meth. I mean, I, I don't know. I never found out about it afterwards either. I don't mess with mold and I don't mess with foundation issues. But you can start off with a house that's just really unattractive. Shag carpet is your best friend because it's really easy to replace flooring. Anybody can paint. There's a lot of things you can do without moving walls. A rehab doesn't have to be like, take it to the studs, redo absolutely everything, move walls around, add bathrooms. You can just paint and have a whole lot better house. Paint the cabinets if they're really ugly, if you don't really want to you know, replace them. But we move into a house, we rehab it, usually all the bathrooms in the kitchen. The kitchen is going to be a really easy way to improve your property inexpensively. And I say inexpensively because we do all the work ourselves. Finding a contractor can be kind of difficult. So we've just learned how to do everything. We do YouTube University is a really great way to learn how to do absolutely everything. And before the pandemic, you could go to a big box store and take a class. You learn how to lay tile with their tile and their tools and their cement and their, you know, all the things. And it's hands-on without actually ruining your floor. But I haven't done anything that I couldn't undo. And now we do, you know, we started off light with laying tile and painting and, you know, a new kitchen. And now we're doing electrical and plumbing. And we just finished off the basement. We studded it out and like completely, it was nothing. It was cement walls and cement floor. And you just add on as you go. But I have never sold a house for less than $100,000 profit. And that's all tax-free for me because I live in the house for two years as my primary residence. So I pay no taxes on my capital gains. I'm actually hoping for a day that I can pay taxes on my capital gains, which is a $500,000 profit. There's a lot of nuance to this strategy and everything we're talking about is a spectrum here. So Mindy has in the past or recent past, I would say gone pretty far along to the more extreme end of the spectrum where she's done major rehabs and significantly increase the value of her properties and been able to sell it for a tax-free capital gain. 
But again, you could just go in and pull out some shag carpet in the basement and update the walls and those types of things or improve the landscaping and do that slowly over a period of two, three years. And that might add a good amount of value to the property and give you much greater chance of selling your property at a gain rather than being at the mercy of the market and hoping that that carries you. And then on my end, I've gone the extreme end of buying kind of dinky little duplexes, living in half and renting them out to maximize the amount of rent income I could create relative to my mortgage payment. But you can live in a luxury duplex or a luxury home and rent out a couple of bedrooms or whatever in between and offset your mortgage partially. So there's a spectrum here to understand. But keep in mind the three exit options are the living in the property forever, which really shouldn't be your plan, or we recommend it shouldn't be your plan, at least not in 2021, if you're buying for the first time. Selling the property for a gain or renting it out and renting it. And then there's all these permutations, short-term rentals versus long-term rentals, live and flip major rehabs, just some tidying up work, those types of things. And we try to outline as much of that as possible. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Investing is an activity I'm sure you enjoy deep diving into. But the problem is finding other people who care about investing as much as you do. I can count on two fingers how many personal friends I have who care about investing even a fraction as much as I do. This is why I'm so excited to share some info about the Investors Podcast Mastermind Community. The community is for people who not only want to improve their abilities at value investing, but also want to share interesting investing ideas, thoughts, and strategies about investing and business with other investors who are eager to learn. Membership comes with a ton of benefits, a community forum where you can chat with other members about topics like your latest stock idea, quality investing, key insights from your favorite book, your favorite devalue play, and a ton of other topics. You get access to TIP Finance, an investing tool which helps you easily pick individual stocks. You get access to templates for writing one-page stock pitches, checklists, and many other resources to come. And probably my favorite feature is the ability to take part in Q&As with some of our very special guests such as Gautam Bade, Chris Mayer, Ian Castle, and many others. We fostered a community that helps create networking opportunities as well. Many members hop on video calls and regularly share ideas and strategies from a wide range of perspectives. We add new members quarterly and spots fill up quickly. So get on the waitlist today by going to theinvestorspodcast.com slash mastermind. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. If you're listening to this, you're probably a millennial like myself. Or maybe you're not a millennial, but enjoy the investing content regardless of age. Either way, if you enjoy the interviews and discussions on the Millennial Investing Podcast, you're going to love the episodes of We Study Billionaires just as much. Whether you want to hear interviews with the titans of investing industry like Howard Marks, Ray Dalio, and Jeremy Grantham, better understand investing legends from the past like Charlie Munger or Thomas Phelps, improve your understanding of current market environments, top up your skills on finding and holding multi-bigger stocks, or just want to learn about high-quality stocks, then We Study Billionaires is exactly what you need. Subscribe now on your platform of choice at theinvestors.com slash we-study-billionaires. All right, back to the show. 
I forget which show it was or even what medium it was. I think it was a podcast probably, but Mindy taught me indirectly about live and flips. And so I had done a house hack indirectly and then I wanted to do another house hack, but I just couldn't find one. And so I ended up doing a live and flip and Scott, you talked about the spectrum. I am like on the easiest side of the spectrum because I can't swing a hammer to save my life. So I ended up buying a living. Oh, it looks like you posted like one picture behind you. On and the it's about to fall down. If I put a fourth book on here, it's going <laughs> to fall down. But so I can't do anything like that. So I was like, all right, I got to keep this easy. And so what I ended up doing was I bought this half of a duplex. I wanted to buy the whole thing so I could house hack, but it wasn't for sale. So I bought half and I recognized this is a really family oriented neighborhood, but this yard is awful. Like no family is going to want to buy this because there's no space for any kids or pets or anything. So I ended up buying the property. I put about I don't know, maybe $5,000 into renovating the outside, made the landscaping, you know, graded it. So it was all flat, put up a fence, made it really nice for a family. Did some paint on the inside, nothing major. Like I can actually use a paintbrush surprisingly. And that was pretty much it. That was all I did. And I ended up selling it two years later for like an $85,000 gain. And it was really relatively minor, but it made it fit the neighborhood a lot better than it did when I bought it. And that's all it is, is, is you had an exit plan going into the purchase and you didn't require a ton of work, but what most people's average salary is 80 grand, right? Or less. So you're making, you know, two years of income tax free by making this decision correctly and intelligently, especially in the early days. And like one day you may buy the forever home. That's really nice. And that's at the, but you'll be able to do it from a position of complete strength. I just think this is such a key lever and a huge financial consequences over time for people. And I admire your choices there. Mindy, let me know where you want me to send your commission check. <laughs> you can send it to the bigger pockets offices. But I will disagree with you. You can swing a hammer. I think there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I don't know how to do anything. What's the worst that can happen? I mean, yeah, with plumbing and electricity, you could have you know, some bigger things. I wouldn't recommend starting off trying to you know, rewire the house. But you can change out a light switch. Step number one, turn off the electricity. Or you need to change the faucet. Step number one, turn off the water. And then try it. If it doesn't work, keep the water turned off and call the plumber. Or put it all back together. I actually hate plumbing because I'm not strong enough to tighten it enough to turn it off. But there's a lot of things that you can do that you might not think you can do. And some of the like installing flooring seems like it's really difficult. It's not. Watch a video on YouTube. And if you don't like what they're doing, watch another one. There's like 25,000 videos on every subject you could possibly imagine, or maybe 25 million, I don't know. But there's a video out there that'll teach you how to do it and they'll explain it in such a way that you'll be like, oh, I know what they're talking about now. And you really can learn how to do this. I learned it from a book. And I'm older than YouTube. So I learned it before YouTube was even out there helping you. If you want to learn how to do a, a project, YouTube it. And you would be amazed at how many thousands of videos there are out there to teach you how to do it. Also, if you want some hands-on experience, come to my house. There's a lot of things that I don't like doing, but I, I do anyways, depending on the reward for it, right? Like, I'm sure you didn't enjoy painting your house, but you make 85 grand, that's a large dollar per hour activity. And paying somebody else to do it can be way more than your dollar, your hourly rate, especially in the early stages of getting going with your wealth journey. So I just think it's a matter of being open to that and knowing that the difference that can be a 20, 30, 50, 80, $100,000 decision to at least leave that as an op option open in your initial hunt and framing of the property search. It can make the exit options that much easier to achieve if you're willing to go in with the mindset of 
being open to a little bit of that, make hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars difference over the years. YouTube has definitely taught me a lot, but I learn a lot from bigger pockets. It's probably taught me the most about real estate. And one of the things Brandon Turner talks about a lot, I can still hear him saying it in my head, is if you don't enjoy doing something, pay somebody else to do it. And that's kind of where I fall is like, I've definitely come a long way in terms of being able to swing a hammer. I could do a lot more now than I could when I bought my first house, but I just really don't like it. I just It's not something I'm really like enjoying that much. So I typically hire it out. So when I moved into that live and flip, I painted myself part of it. And then when I sold, I actually hired somebody to paint the whole thing because I was like, I'm not painting again. I just absolutely hate painting. That's true, except for on your very first deal, right after you're getting started with your all of your cash and liquidity and the 100% of the stakes on the line in that position. In that case, it's kind of hard to justify paying somebody else to do it for most people. At least it was for me. But now I agree with you. Well, and knowing how to do it is very important because then you can hire it out. And I know that Scott is doing it 100% wrong because I know how to do it. I'm watching him do it and I'm going to fire him. Or I know Scott's doing it right because I know how to do it and he's doing it the way that I would have done it. I have a list of four things that I will never do. Cement flat work, roofs, gutters, and drywall. I've done many of them. I've never done a roof. I have enough money for that. I'll work a second job to get enough money for that. Yeah, drywall can be frustrating. That's one of the things I won't do either. And I think one of my, you know, quote unquote competitive advantages, I guess you could say, is that my dad's a blue collar guy. So all his friends and like family members are all blue collar people. So I typically can get a relatively good rate on a lot of the stuff that I need done because they know my dad. So I'm not paying like a random contractor that I don't know full market value either. So I'm also able to get a little bit of a discount, which is helpful that, you know, I don't have to do it. That is huge that you can even get contractors to call you back right now, even if you're paying the exact same price that everybody else is. It is so difficult to find a contractor right now. Yeah. So when you're looking for a contractor, if you need somebody to do work, talk to absolutely everybody you know. I'm looking for somebody who paints. Oh, my dad's a painter. Great. If your friend's dad is a painter, he might actually call you back. I have a friend who's a plumber. I try not to bother him because he does really big jobs. But if I need something... I would lean on him. Hey, Mike, my flux capacitor broke. Can you come fix it, please? Or you know, whatever it is. But knowing people is really, really powerful. My dad has built up a lot of goodwill over the years, and I'm finally able to tap into the goodwill that he hasn't used. <laughs> I hear from people all the time that they're just going to buy a foreclosure for their first property. And funny enough, I actually thought that that was how I was going to buy my first house. And I want to make the distinction between a foreclosure and what we're talking about buying now with a live and flip, because you mentioned habitable, Mindy, and I think that's a big component. Why is sometimes buying a foreclosure a misconception that people have? Well, first of all, where are you buying foreclosures right now? There is nothing on the market. And in most markets, the inventory is like three or 12 houses, and they come on the market on Thursday, they're under contract on Monday. So anybody who is facing foreclosure should just list it because they're going to get top dollar for it because there's nothing on the market. So right now, that's a common misconception because there's nothing available. I do think that we might, once the eviction moratoriums end and people haven't been able to pay their mortgages because their tenants aren't paying rent, we might see a lot more houses come on the market and start maybe, I wouldn't say flooding the market, but definitely picking up inventory just because I can't continue to hold this house. But 
the market the past few years has been really, really hot and trying to buy a foreclosure just isn't going to happen. Sometimes when the house has been foreclosed on, the people who are being forced out are unhappy with that situation and they may cause significant damage to the home. I have heard stories where people have flushed a bag of cement down the toilets and now all of the toilet lines are filled with cement. That is probably not going to be a super fun thing to go through. Copper was at all-time high prices. I don't know if people are still stealing copper, but for a while, people were stealing copper out of the house and all of your plumbing lines are copper. So you'd go to turn on the water and there's a flood everywhere because there's no supply lines. So a foreclosure isn't necessarily the best option for a first-time home buyer. It can be. I've bought foreclosure houses. My last one was in 2013. There's just not a lot of foreclosures in a lot of places right now, though. I would just say that the challenge is, how do I get a good deal, right? So once we decided what we want, how do we get a good deal? And, and that, that, I think, is the broader context behind that question. I think Mindy's absolutely right in that, relatively speaking, over the past 20 years, right now is probably not a big time for foreclosures because you know property prices have been increasing, generally speaking, across most of the country. It could be different in various markets. I know San Francisco seems to have had a very bad year for housing prices in particular with prices plummeting and those types of things. But you know, you think that for the most part, foreclosures are relatively more rare, but still on the market and I think pose some of the risks there. But when I think about getting a good deal, it's about knowing exactly what you want, doing your research and looking at sold comps and understanding how you're going to get that deal flow. Most people buying their first home are going to buy a property that's listed on the MLS, their local multiple listing service. It's going to be a property that is marketed for sale to many people. And foreclosures will be included in that. So there'd be multiple sources of, the, of these types of deals marketed for sale. And so I think it's just about knowing what you want, building a patient pipeline, and then pouncing on that good deal because good deals are not going to sit on the market for very long right now. So I think you need to be ready in advance with what you want and offer instantaneously when that good deal that you've pre-vetted. And you know, I'm looking for the $300,000 properties in this part of town with three beds, two baths, X amount of square footage, X amount of yard space, that kind of stuff. And when it comes on the market, I'm going to buy immediately because it's not going to last for two weeks and let me make a, a cool, calm, and collective decision. I have to make that decision ahead of time and react in real time, regardless whether it's a foreclosure or coming on the market because of another reason. And the other difficult piece with foreclosures is that typically financing is hard to get, especially for a first-time home buyer because financing, you need it. The lender wants it to be habitable. And a lot of times a foreclosure is not. And so getting financing for a foreclosure can be a lot more difficult than people think about. Yep. And habit, habitable, I think, that's the, I think that's the great word is ha, what does habitable mean? Sometimes can depends. It can have an amorphous definition. But yes, you don't want a property that's in such bad shape, you can't get conventional financing, particularly on your first property. That, that, that will spell a whole bunch of trouble. I mean, there are exceptions to every rule, but in general, that's, a, I think, a generally unwise decision with that. My first property was a foreclosure and it was habitable, but it did not have things like blinds on the windows and <laughs> you know, finished sections of the property. I had to do all that work and I was able to generate a large ROI on that purchase, but yes, it caused a lot more problems. <laughs> so the distinction there is you could get conventional financing, but you probably couldn't do FHA if somebody's listening to the show that's, that's thinking that route too. That's right. I got an FHA load on this property because it barely met the conditions for habitable on that. And they actually had to tweak a few things to make it habitable before I could get the close on the FHA loan. 
as part of the, the inspection objection. Yeah, it just my first two primary residences, I did conventional. And then the third one I just bought, I did FHA and they were extremely strict. I was really shocked because I hadn't experienced that before. And like there was some paint chipping on a deck in the backyard and like they wouldn't even lend on it with FHA until it was painted. I was like, wow, they're really strict compared to previous two loans conventional. That was not my experience seven years ago, but things could have changed. Yeah. So it might just depend on your particular appraiser as well, your FHA appraiser. Yeah, that was definitely my experience three months ago when I was trying to help someone sell their house. The FHA appraiser kept coming back. Uh, what about this? What about this? I'm like, really? There's nothing wrong with that. Like the light switch doesn't have a cover. You know, that's like 25 cents at Home Depot, right? But okay, I'll go get a cover. And- but Scott, oh, to your point, I think right. it is something that's changed because my agent even told me, he's like, listen, FHA has gotten a lot harder over the years. He said, I used to be able to do this much easier before. And now, you know, I know we're going to have all these issues. So let's just get out in front of it, which thankfully we did. The good news, if you're listening, is that I think there's plenty of options and alternatives to FHA. And the big advantage for me with an FHA was being able to get a 3.5%, or I guess I used a 5% down FHA loan. I think you can just get a 3.5% down conventional loan nowadays, which would get you out of a couple of those thorny challenges. So there are other options besides FHA, but yeah. I'm learning something right here right now. I didn't realize how much stricter it seems FHA has gotten. I was going to say, if you can do a conventional loan, go with conventional because the PMI can come off after you've paid 20% down. Whereas with an FHA, the PMI is there forever until you get out of the loan. And yeah, they are super, super strict. And I think they have every right to be right now. As annoying as it is, they have every right to be because some of these properties are going to go into foreclosure. And they want to make sure that they are selling it as easily as possible. And that's, you know, that's kind of unfortunate, but the government is backing these loans and they don't want to see another 2008. I was going to say, it's almost like they learned something from last time. Almost. What's interesting though, you know, we're talking about there's so many competitive markets and there is. And if you're going against somebody with conventional financing versus FHA, you're going to have a hard time most of the time. In my case, I think I got a little bit lucky. I, was, I think I was the only offer on this property And so it didn't really matter that I was FHA, but I actually was able to use that FHA inspection as a negotiating piece against the seller. And he had to fix all of these things at his expense before I could buy it because I was the only buyer. And if he wanted to sell that property, he had to fix these things or he wasn't going to sell it and it was going to go back on the market. So for me, me, it's the FHA appraiser. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Hey, I'm not asking for these things. The FHA is. And if you want to sell, you have no choice. Yeah. As a listing agent, I had only that one offer on that house. And it was, we had to do everything because we didn't have any other offers. I got a whole new heating system for free from the seller. $10,000 selling credit. It was great. Yeah. And they fixed all the pain and everything. It was great. Awesome. As a listing agent, if I have two offers on the table and one of them is FHA and one of them is conventional, I am going to share my experience with the FHA loan that I had that was such a disaster three months ago with my seller and say, hey, this is something you need to really consider before you choose this offer over that one. And that's the big piece that I I want everybody listening to take away too, is if you have the option to do one or the other, you might want to consider conventional, just it'll Mm -hmm. give you more negotiating power. I guess it sounds like if you're looking at a property that's been sitting on the market for several months, then maybe it's a good idea to use the FHA loan because if there's something wrong with the property, your FHA inspector will force you to confront the issue and those types of things. So that's exactly right. It's situational. So use it to your advantage. You know, people say, oh, I need FHA. I'm, it's my first time buying a house or I've already bought a house. I can't use FHA. 
don't be so strict on that. Think about the situation, you know, gauge where you are and the competition and all of everything that's going into the transaction. Choose what's best for you. I've done about seven, eight, maybe nine deals so far. Not all of them were primary residences, but they all had agents involved and lenders. And I've been able to see just how important each of them are and how much of a difference they make on how the transactions go. How do we choose the right real estate agent and lender for us? What should we look out for? I'm going to take the lender one first because I feel it's a little self-serving to be like, you should get an agent that's just like me. With the lender, you want somebody who can do what they say they're going to do. If they say they're going to close in 30 days, they need to have a track record of being able to close in 30 days. I have a go-to lender right now. He can do a 15 to 21 day close. And the first time he told me this, I'm like, "Mm, we'll see. 21 days later, I had a VA loan close in 21 days, which is unheard of because this guy knows what he's doing. He knows how to work the system. It's all legal and like following the rules and all of that, but he knows how to work the system to get the deal done on time. That's way more valuable than somebody whose office is down the street from me. Yes, he also has amazing rates, but if you're trying to do something, especially in this crazy market that we're in right now, if you're trying to do something that isn't a traditional 30-day close, you know, 20% down conventional loan, go with somebody who has a proven track record rather than the guy who's an eighth of a quarter of a percentage off on the rate. Yeah, you should compare apples to apples and you know, this is his rate, this is his closing costs, this is his, you know, all the little fees and whatever. But when it comes down to it, you need somebody who can do what they say they're going to do. And that can be a little difficult to find. But once you find them, treat them like gold because they will watch out for you and do everything they need to do to help your deal close too. Yeah. I think on the first time purchase, I would agree with Mindy with the caveat that you're probably going to be doing something pretty normal with your first home purchase. You're probably going to be doing a conventional loan or an FHA or something like that. And for that, I think that the rate is really like, you know, and, and the terms, you know, reputation is important with that, is really kind of like, I would say, number one for me. And then the reputation and the service is maybe number two. But like for where I and Mindy are now, and maybe you are, Robert, with buying multiple properties and, and having these types of things, I do it all through one lender who gives exceptional service. And that is worth way more to me than shopping on a little bit of on the rate front. So I I think there's a a blend there to go shopping around with that on some of those. I was going to say, you should also talk to your agent about lender recommendations because like when people are asking me, hey, do you have a lender? Yeah, I've got a great lender. And here's why he's great. When you ask your agent why they're recommending somebody, listen to what they have to say. Because if they're just, oh, this is that guy that did that one loan for me this one time. Great. That's a super awesome, solid recommendation. When you have somebody who says things like I do, he has never missed a deadline for me. That's really important. That's way more important than you know being in a tiny bit better on the rates, which he also is always awesome on. But I think you're right, Scott, that the first time home buyer is going to be buying a regular property. They're doing a regular transaction. So you would need to talk to your agent and get a regular lender that they can trust. And then on the agent side, I would say that Indian I's approach to buying the first home, what is the agent's dream client? It's someone with a great income, great credit, who is in a real big hurry to buy a home before their lease expires, creating a, a very artificial deadline. 
and is going to fall in love with the first property that they see. If you you know, listen to the, if you buy into anything we've been saying during this show, you're going to look to the agent like someone who's, yeah, got good income and good credit, of course, but is not really in a big hurry, is going to wait and be patient to find that right property, knows exactly what they're looking for and is buying a little bit below your means. And so that appears like more work and less money to some agents potentially. And so I think what you need to look for is you need to interview a couple of agents and make it clear like, hey, I am willing to be patient on this search and wait for that great deal to come on the market. I know exactly what I'm looking for and I'm ready, willing, and able to buy that if you can produce that. I am not going to sit here and make you show me 50 properties and waste your time, but I'm, I'm going to really buy when, when something that you know, is that three to 500 you know, or 1500 square foot property in Denver and these neighborhoods comes on the market. Bring that to me and, and we'll do it. But it might be three, six months before that property hits the market because there's only been a few of them sold in the last six months. So I, th- I think that's the mentality to go into with the agent and to ask them questions around that. Hey, are my expectations realistic? You know, I looked at this and I saw these are these have sold. Is that going to happen in the future? Do you work with investors and at all and have that mentality? Can you validate my assumptions around future rent or future appreciation potential for this property? Do you work with first-time home buyers frequently? Do you know the ins and outs of what people are doing? You know, and if you're working with a newer agent, that can be fine as long as they have a mentor that can help answer some of those questions and might be willing to invest more time with you. If you're working with the busiest agent in town, you got to know that you're going to get less service, but they probably will have more answers handy for you when you have certain things come up during the process. So I think you know, there's plenty more to that, but I think that that's my high-level response to the finding the right agent question. Yeah. I want to jump in on what you just said, Scott, and say that the question, how frequently do you work with first-time homebuyers is an important question because it is so easy to have done this so many times, you forget the basics or you forget to explain the basics. And I try really hard when I am working with people that I know are first-time homebuyers to explain the entire process. When you make an offer in Colorado, I'm filling out an 18-page document. I have filled it out probably, I don't know, 12 million times. So I know all the things. I gloss over the things like there's a big wall of text. I know what it says. I don't need to read it anymore. But when I know that you're the first time home buyer, I want to explain that to you. And you want somebody who will answer your questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question. If you have a question about the process, this is a big deal. Ask your questions. But if your agent is always like, Ugh, don't worry about that. It doesn't matter. That's not the right agent for a first time home buyer. You want somebody who will take the time to explain it to you because this is a huge deal and you need to treat it like the important thing that it is. And be wary of the title top agent. The top agent in your market is the person who processes the most volume, sells the most expensive houses the quickest, right? That does not necessarily mean that they're the best service or whatever. And the way I read that, frankly, is the top agent in your market is the one that is helping people make the biggest financial decision of their life in the, the most rapid time frame possible with the most amount of clients. That's not necessarily what I'm looking for when it comes to service for my agent. It's not a bragging point. I want somebody who's, who's not doing this for the first, second, or third time, especially if they don't have like a great mentor to help them with higher level questions. But the busiest agent in town is probably not your best bet for a lot of this stuff. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. 
Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash MI. netsuite.com slash MI. That's netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. In the context of everything that we're talking about today, being a first-time home buyer, where does house hacking play into it? House, house hacking ha- is huge for a first-time home buyer. It can be, you know, there's caveats. Like if you're married and have kids and you're just discovering this, maybe that's not the best choice for your family. But it can lead to enormous wealth generation just by being slightly, I don't want to say uncomfortable. What's the word? Out of the ordinary. Craig Curlop is actually the author of a book called House Hacking, and he bought a house and lived. (laughs) It was a one-bedroom house, and he slept on the couch and Airbnb the bedroom. So he hacked his housing that way. And 
he made enough money that way to buy another property where now he had a whole bedroom to himself and lived with roommates. And he used that to buy another property. And I think four houses in, he paid off $86,000 in student loan debt. That's enormous wealth generation. And now he's got no debt and four houses. He's got a lot more houses now, but that can be really huge. But he was also, what was he, 23 or 24 when he started that? So he's not married. He doesn't have a family. He doesn't have all these other things to consider. There's a lot of different ways to hack air housing, though. You can buy a duplex and not have any roommates while still having a property that's helping pay your mortgage. Or I consider live-in flipping to be house hacking as well. Everything's a spectrum. House hacking is on the far end of the spectrum towards optimal wealth creation, right? It's a very, very good wealth building tool. It allows you to live for very low cost or free or even build wealth. It literally turns you in from housing being expense to just you're just making money while living as part of that if you do it right. And so it's extraordinarily powerful. I did it for seven years. I think it's an optimal approach. That said, you know, we have a book on house hacking by Craig, which I think, you know, if you're interested in that, that's going to really touch on that. Our book does touch on house hacking, but we also, I think, acknowledge in this book that that's not really the, the meat of what we're talking about here. We know that for many people, they're not going to want to house hack. That's not going to be a desirable outcome for them. It's certainly an optimal and it will be better financially than buying a house, a single family home with just you and your family living in it from a financial standpoint. But we're probably more in line in our book and what we're discussing today with the around the, the hey, how am I buying a single family home? That me and my family are going to live in. Well, yes, the option to house hack is presented and is there, but and is optimal, but it's it's a little bit more extreme than than many people might be willing to do in the first purchase, especially if they've got a family, kids, those types of things. If anyone listening today wants to hear more about Craig's story or learn more about the house hacking strategy, we had Craig back on episode four. You go back and listen to that episode. When you guys think about when you were just starting to get involved in real estate, whether it was as an investor or just a home buyer. What do you know now that you didn't know back then that would have helped you grow your wealth and portfolio exponentially faster? Don't buy condos. When I had my condo, my mortgage payment was $410 a month because interest rates were 7%. And my HOA dues were $200 a month. And then the next month, they went up to $400 a month. So I instantly doubled my HOA payment simply because I didn't know what I was doing. I have never owned a condo that didn't come with a special assessment. I know a lot more about it now, but I don't, I'm so burned by it. I don't ever want to buy another condo. So don't buy a condo and learn your market. Be really, really aware of what a house is selling for in good condition and in I can fix it up condition. And, you know, be aware of what your skills are and buy that ugly house and fix it up. Aside from uh, knowing that the market would have boomed the way it did over the last seven years and just buying and leveraging, I think more than that, I think I would have focused more on, and this is really related to my investing journey specifically, I would have focused more on laying a better operating infrastructure because you know you buy a couple of houses, they're spread out, they begin getting in different parts of the city and those types of things. You know, Focusing on having great property management, Making sure that all the everything is really tidied up. There's a good maintenance schedule. You're looking at all of the big systems of the house on a regular basis. Those types of things. Those really add up for an investor over time, and and would apply to a homeowner as well. And it can seem petty or not important at the time, but they can cause you some big headaches downstream, as I found out. Mindy Scott, thank you both for joining me today. 
for those listening that are interested in learning more about you, your book, and all the concepts that we talked about today, where's the best place for them to go? Biggerpockets.com. I am all over the forums at Bigger Pockets. You can find me on Twitter at Mindy at BP, M-I-N-D-Y-A-T-B-P. And I'm on Instagram, but don't send me messages there because I don't use it. But I'm all over Bigger Pockets. I'm there all day, every day. And I love talking about real estate. It's my favorite. Yeah, you can find me at Bigger Pockets as well. I'm on Instagram at, at Scott underscore Trench. And then uh, you can find our book, First Time Home Buyer, anywhere books are sold. But specifically, you can buy that on Bigger Pockets. You can just go to our bookstore and you'll be able to see it right there. I'll put a link to the new book as well as Bigger Pockets and Scott and Mindy's social profiles in the show notes below. So anybody interested can check those out there. Guys, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. We appreciate it. This is a lot of fun, Robert. Thank you. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.